Tambo Sidlamini, based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I'm an Atlantic Fellow for Racial Equity for the 2019 cohort. It's been an interesting few months in South Africa. When COVID-19 started, there was quite a rapid response in terms of government, from social distancing and taking precaution. Within a week, government had made a decision to close down everything. So we went into lockdown. At the moment, we are in what's called level three lockdown. Gradually, the economy opening up, schools have partially started. So we managed to flatten the curve, so to speak, or halt the increase of infection while the lockdown was quite intense. In the last few weeks that we've transitioning into opening the economy, actually the increase in infection rates has been quite rapid. So I think we are bracing ourselves for what's going to be a challenging period. The economy was already taking a downturn in South Africa even before COVID-19, and the impact feels like it's going to be on for a long while. And that presents both a lot of challenges, but I think also a conversation about this economy wasn't working for the majority of the country. So what's the new economy going to look like, or what are the opportunities in reconfiguring the economy as we move forward? So those are some of the things that are front of mind for me as I come into this conversation and I have an interest in sharing what similarities are there, what might be the differences, what we might learn from each other, what are possibilities that are opening up in the midst of all the challenges that we presented with. Well, terrific. I'm Cedric Brown. I am a senior fellow with the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity. I'm located right now in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and am also based in Oakland, California, which is where I do most of my work. I have a long history in the U.S. philanthropic sector, working mostly with the KPOR Foundation and the KPOR Center. The situation in the U.S. feels like it's a once-in-a-generation, perhaps a once-a-century kind of happening in that the murder of George Floyd has galvanized a shift in attitudes nationally around racial justice. And so we're starting to see what I think is a breaking up of the ice and some forward movement in ways that I did not think were going to be immediately possible. Now, this is on top of the pandemic response, or in many cases, the lack of an organized pandemic response coming from our federal government. The federal government has pitched the responsibility to states and to local jurisdictions to ensure that people, that citizens and residents are taken care of in this pandemic. And so we are seeing how certain communities, especially those that have been predisposed or even pre-exposed to be vulnerable to such a pandemic and this virus, how these communities have been disproportionately affected by infection rates as well as deaths. So it is playing out along racialized lines. There's a heightened awareness of that here in the States now. 
as well as this racial justice movement that not moving without great contestation because we're seeing ugliness come from everywhere in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. It is highly politicized. We're in the midst of a presidential campaign, which will culminate hopefully in a shift of direction come November. These are really charged times right now. Mm. So to set context in terms of how the racial dynamics play out in South Africa, South Africa is a majority black country, but that's deeply anti-black. And part of that is also just understanding our history. If you understand the colonial history, followed by an apartheid history, and since 1994, having a constitutional democracy. But I think for the most part, didn't shift any of the patterns in terms of what the racial dynamics would be. If you understand how racism is about power, the power dynamics have not shifted in South Africa. Perhaps the political power shifted, but the social and economic part of those relationships have remained calcified even with the dawn of democracy. So even though the government is black in South Africa, it's still an anti-black government that for the most part is about preserving the interest of big business, for instance, that's still majority white in white hands. And then if you also understand how the patterns of internalized dominance and internalized oppression play out, that you can have black people in power, but that are equally anti-black. So the lockdown happens in South Africa, the army is deployed to be able to enforce the lockdown, and we see the example of someone like Collins Corsa, who's then harmed by the same state that's meant to be protecting us, and by black policemen, right? I think part of that is a demonstration of how the state is not about the lives of black people in this country. It's easy perhaps to assume it's an exception or it's those policemen in particular that would act that way. But actually, they are a demonstration of how the state perceives black people in this country. Right across from an education system that's still very much in the service of a minority, probably both class and race, to a health system in terms of what's happening under COVID-19 at the moment, Again, that is about preserving the lives of a few rather than catering to everyone. And the people that are most impacted are poor Black people. So I think the understanding that you can have a majority Black country that's still an anti-Black state is an important part of this conversation. The other thing that I want to introduce into this conversation is this idea, if I look at the U.S., we talk about police violence. In a South African context, I'd be interested to see if there's any parallels. In a South African context, I think those stories are usually not amplified in terms of police violence because there is a sense of, well, it's not racially based. But if you think of how violence operates, actually violence is a function of the state in South Africa in all forms. The fact that large numbers of black people live in poverty and that's normalized in South Africa, partly as a hang up of the past, but even in present day South Africa, that act of violence is seen as a given rather than a concern for the state. I think we speak about it, but still in ways that for the most part pathologizes black people and poor people rather than an understanding that that is an act of violence. That's a great jumping off point. 
I want to actually address an earlier point that you made about where power resides in South Africa, because in the United States, we are moving in that same direction. And I think South Africa has provided an example to folks in the States who understand that while the United States is becoming a majority people of color nation, Black, Indigenous, other people of color, Mestizo, Latino, etc. And we are slated to have that shift happen before 2040. I keep saying that that demographic shift does not matter if power, economic and political power, because the two of those things are inextricably combined, it seems, here in the States right now, doesn't also shift because then we'll remain in the hands of white folk. And so there won't be significant changes aside from the demographic presence and public institutions and the corporate sector needing to understand they have to engage folks of color. But politically, I don't know that much will shift unless there is some kind of change around wealth distribution. Then the Police violence, I think police violence is definitely connected to the history of policing and perceptions around public safety. And it's definitely built upon the pathologizing of Black people and poor people and other people of color. So this notion of trying to keep people in their place by any means necessary because they present a threat to the quote-unquote civilized order is definitely part of what keeps getting passed down generation to generation around policing. And it sounds like that's a state of mind that our two nations share, regardless of which population is the majority population. Y'all have a majority black situation. We have, for now, majority white situation. But the roots of policing and the ways that it can play out violently are deeply dug into this kind of anti-blackness that both of our nations have fostered during the course of their histories. So, Busi, I'm interested in your experience as an African woman, a black African woman, who may have witnessed the end of apartheid and the shift to a majority Black government and the ANC coming into power. What has it been like to witness what has been, in certain ways, the intractable presence of anti-Blackness? So I think part of it is understanding how that shift happened, moving from apartheid to a democratic state. To also understand that this was a negotiated settlement. And I think for a lot of us, part of that was the sense that there was huge compromise. As someone who was 14 years old when we had the 1994 elections, I also have memories of how hard that transition was. So I was 12 when we had the referendum in 1992 attending a school that was predominantly white and listening to people's perceptions of a referendum that was meant to be allowing black people to have the vote. I think it's easy to be in 2020 and talk about the compromises that were made and how it shortchanged black people. So I am completely of the view that a lot could have been different, but I'm also just very aware of at the time what the limitations might have been. So it was an imperfect transition. 
And I think we see the consequences of some of that. There's a lot out of that process that I think was done in a way to avoid civil war. That was the kind of language, I think, at the time that was very present for us. In the early 90s, there'd been huge unrest between the ANC and the Ngata Freedom Party, the IFP. So just having what looked like a smooth transition after what had started off as quite a violent negotiation was a relief for a lot of us. As I look back now, I think the obsession with just having political power was one of the limitations of what that transition looked like. It meant we were happy to be voting and have political power without shifting any of the economic patterns that we still see in South Africa at the moment. So the economic patterns in some ways became exacerbated after 1994. I also think at some level, even though we had the TRC, so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for the most part, we didn't do the work of unlearning racism in South Africa. The work of unlearning what we've internalized as Black people in terms of how we value ourselves, how we perceive ourselves, how we still have whiteness as the external standard of what we think to be aspired towards. And equally for white South Africans, I think a huge sense of still having internalized dominance. So I think, Cedric, what I'm saying is part of the transition was the genesis of what we're seeing now in terms of the lack of substantive change. We agreed to a political change without looking at in what ways we want to shift the economic patterns and in what ways at a social level we wanting to shift some of that internalized dominance an internalized oppression that still plays out. And do you see this happening along generational lines? Is there a generational leadership transition? Because we saw folks step up with roads must fall, fees must fall, which I think of as kind of a Black Lives Matter counterpart in that both of those movements were led by younger people who said enough and we need to move in a different direction. And we're trying to create a new reality here. Do you see a similar generational leadership transition happening? The young people really do give me such hope. Like you're saying, an emergence of young people, initially at universities, that were challenging the status quo about in what ways these institutions are actually still bastions of colonialism and still hold such apartheid DNA within them. So we're definitely seeing a cohort of young people that is wanting to shift that and challenge that. In terms of legislation in South Africa, there's a lot that's spelled out in terms of what's the type of change that's required. I often say how a lot of people talk about our constitution being one of the most progressive. We have almost this aspirational sense of who we want to be, but the lived experience isn't true for most South Africans. And I think those university students were a reminder of that. So the work started, but on a day-to-day basis in terms of implementing some of the things that are being pushed for, it's much harder. And there's still resistance. In my experience, there's still a resistance in these institutions. What we're seeing also at the moment, Cedric, is it's becoming even the younger people. So when Fees Must Fall and Rose Must Fall was taking place, there were a few private schools or what we call Model C schools, which was formerly white schools that have become integrated. 
a few young people were starting to speak up about their experiences in those schools. Those felt like the exception at the time. So there's definitely a louder voice coming from young people, even at a school-going age rather than just tertiary. So there's definitely embers in terms of the change that's required. But I am wondering, unless the state itself is supporting that, it's often left on young people to be at the forefront of that change. And there's a cost to that, I think, which is why parts of conversations like this are important in terms of in what ways do we think of finding leverage points for what the change that's required is. I think I come to this point with a slightly different point of view, thinking about how Folks across generations, across ages, across experiences all have something to contribute to the movement. So I've been in an ongoing conversation with friends. We're Gen Xers. Most of us are in our 40s and 50s talking about, well, do we need to be on the front line? Who do we need to listen to in terms of looking for leadership? What are the ways that we can contribute, given that we have longer histories of organizing and working with people and uh, have access to certain kinds of capital, have access to networks that could be mobilized to be helpful here? So what are the ways that you can be older in this movement and continue to step up and press for change while being guided by a vision that younger people are crafting because they are saying, well, why is this the way that it is? It doesn't make sense to us. And here is actually something else that we can lead with and fall in behind. I'm a U.S. Southerner, and I never thought that I would see the day that the stars and bars would be barred. The use of that flag would become anathema to folks in the states, the stars and bars, which is one of the battle flags that was used by the Confederate States of America during the U.S. Civil War. It's the one with the big blue X with the stars in the middle and the red fields in the background. This stars and bars flag was rekindled in its use in the early 20th century as a symbol of racial terrorism used by racial terrorists like the Ku Klux Klan. Part of this movement that we're seeing now is the dismantling of some of these old storied symbols of white supremacy that have been cloaked by a certain kind of heritage. And I attribute that to groups of younger activists who say, why is this this way? We don't know. We don't accept that. That isn't an answer. So I think that there's a place for all of us in this movement. And sometimes I end up being a little bit challenged by lack of desire to be on the front lines of it, whereas there are others who are better suited for that kind of confrontation. But then I feel an obligation to help and assist in the ways that I can. I agree about the intergenerational work that's required. Are those networks or that kind of coalition between younger activists and maybe more experienced or former activists, are those networks being cultivated intentionally? What spaces are there for that kind of bridging or connecting? Um, Share what I perceive, but the reality can be much deeper than what I know about. 
I do think that there are points of intersection in that some of the younger and frontline activists have embraced the Black Panther movement, have embraced elders as leaders who can inform the current day movement, but are not guiding it. So I don't see where this current movement of Black Lives Matter folks are ceding power to their elders, but instead they are, in the best cases, recognizing these are people who have been through such movement work before. We're going to learn from their examples and be able to weave some of that into the ways that we're trying to organize and press forward now. Doesn't happen all the way across the board, most likely, but I have been impressed by the ways that folks have gone to Erica Huggins and Angela Davis in particular to look for examples of and advice about how to lead. And I love that they're looking at a womanist-centered approach, looking to Black women to lead, to say, y'all, this is what we need to do in order to address the patriarchy that showed up in the Black Power movement, as well as the racism and white supremacy that we're all continuing to battle. So to me, this is a new morphing. And I think there is a recognition of intergenerational inputs and an opportunity for folks to do that. I also love that Black Lives Matter is a decentralized movement by necessity. So no, we don't need to have a figurehead. Here are some principles and how are we organizing in our respective locales around those principles. That's my impression of it. But again, I'm not deep in the mix. So I think that's where there might be more needed in terms of that intergenerational work in a South African context. Perhaps there's pockets of it that are happening, but in my experience, there is a sense that there's an older generation. We talk about the 1976 generation that also stood up to a state, but that now when they speak of what's currently happening, there's a sense of almost respectability politics that come into play, that there's the right way of challenging that doesn't require protest. So those, I think, are some of the things that feel slightly different to what you're describing. There might be a few allies that are across generations, but for the most part, there isn't always a clear sense that we're working towards the same objectives or that we even believe it's the same tools to be able to reach those objectives. And I don't think there's sufficient conversations that are happening across generations in our context. And that's something that would definitely benefit any kind of movement building. I think the last thing for me that would be important to touch on is around the idea of what possibilities does the current moment also present. For me, in a South African context, if we're saying the economy is needing to be rethought, in truth, South African economy didn't work for the majority of South Africans. So whatever we're trying to put together, actually, there's an opportunity there in saying, what needs to shift fundamentally in how we understand our economy and in what ways it needs to be catering for the majority rather than a limited minority. In your case, what are you seeing as the possible opportunities that this moment presents? My real hope right now, and this is a bit of a callback to something that I wrote and was posted on the Atlantic Fellows Hub, I really hope 
that the pandemic has exposed our vulnerabilities in the United States, again, many of which are racialized, such that we want to make some changes in order to have a safety net for people. So I said something like, if capitalism must exist, then let's have a capitalism where there is fairer distribution of income, where we will have a safety net, where the most vulnerable folks are taken care of and have ways to get out of those vulnerable places. I think that there's more of a stomach for that now in the States than there was even immediately before this pandemic, that people understand that without federal government being able to mobilize us and resources in ways that will benefit its citizenry and the residents here, that we're going to continue to be very vulnerable to these kind of pandemics, which can lead to economic instability, which can lead to social and political instability. So I'm hopeful about how the pandemic as awful as it is, has really raised the sense of possibility around making change that will lead to a greater common good for all of us. I'm hopeful about that. I don't think it's going to happen immediately and without any challenge, but I am hopeful about a new day and a new way around a certain kind of restructuring of our economy. Hmm. And you? That resonates, yeah, with me as well. So in a South African context, some of the things that have emerged, the pain points that have come up during COVID-19, the response has shown us that when we keep saying there aren't resources, it can be done, that actually when there's a crisis, suddenly we need to find those resources. So the question around food justice in South Africa is a big one. The majority of the country actually is food insecure. Suddenly, during COVID-19, that's something that's become central, everyone needing to figure out a solution. For the most part, that conversation's been had in ways that pathologizes poor people. So why can't they feed themselves rather than what's broken in the system that the majority of the country is food insecure? So whatever's emerging in terms of understanding what food justice would look like is an opportunity for me. The next one is just around health care. And we've known this. It's easy to just bury our heads in the sand or to try kick the tin further down. But when something like this happens, actually it makes you understand that broken systems are all our problems. You can't pretend that as a middle-class South African, the fact that the majority of the country can access healthcare is not your problem. Actually, it's all our problems. So the opportunity that's coming up at the moment is having that conversation in ways that it's all our responsibility. So the question of what an equitable healthcare system would look like, I think is something that's back on the table in a different way. The other conversation that's happening at the moment that I think is a great opportunity is around the basic income grant. I think a few years ago when you spoke of a basic income grant, for the most part, people made it seem like this socialist plot to defund the state or something. And for the first time, that's become something that feels plausible. This moment is providing an opportunity for that. I'll just touch on a few more. One is around gender-based violence. The conversation's been reignited at the moment. There's something about this COVID-19 moment, that does mean some of the most pressing things are also getting airtime in a different way. So the question of how violence plays out in South Africa, but particularly for women, 
And then, like you said, the reconfiguring of the economy is another question that is coming up. And the race conversation is also being foregrounded in a different way. So as challenging as the current moment is, I do think it offers opportunities for us to deal with some of the most pressing things that are often almost relegated, particularly because of the economy. In a South African context, we also see what some of the fragmentation around state delivery looks like. And I think my sense is needing to build capacity at local government is where the most impact might be. So I'm sure it would be great to have more presidents and more ministers and a lot of that change would be useful. But where I see the system is broken the most is at local level. And perhaps the question is what capacity is required? How do we build a cohort of young leaders that are stepping into those positions? What's our collective responsibility for building a cohort of young leaders to be able to step into these positions? And I think that there's a collective responsibility around what are the type of leaders we want and how do we identify those and support those to be able to step into those positions. And that definitely is something that I think would energize me. Well, this is an irresistible plug then for the Atlantic Fellows as a network of folks who are leading on multiple continents, in multiple nations, in different political contexts to also think about the possibilities of greater and national or even local leadership and how this network connected to others like Rhodes and the Obama Fellows and the Schmidt Science Fellows could also be a training ground for folks who are interested in that kind of public service. Because as you're saying, we're not going to be led out of these situations by governments that are coming to our rescue, but instead have to make sure that the kind of leaders and leadership that we support and want to see is present in governments. So this is something I think for the fellows networks to think about. Yeah. And when you were speaking about this intergenerational connection, I think that's definitely something that we can consider. What's our responsibility in cultivating the next generation of leaders as well? So in a context like South Africa, where Black people are the majority, I think the antidote to what we're experiencing at the moment is having a clear vision of what Black liberation would look like. I think once Black people have a clear sense of that and are demanding that from their government and have an expectation of that, actually then it becomes easier to enroll other people. I think it's about having a critical mass of people that are a part of a cohort or a group of people that are ensuring that Black liberation is at the forefront of how we see ourselves as a nation. In that sense, then you're not waiting for someone else to change their mind about who you are. And hopefully there's an opportunity to do that as Black people and as white allies who are wanting to come on board. But I don't always see the work being about convincing other people about our humanity. I see it in a very similar way. I take great example from one of my dear friends who uses what he calls the Harriet Tubman model. Harriet Tubman would say to enslaved folks, We're about to go on this path to freedom. I'm taking a group. If you're ready to go now, let's go. They would go. 
She might come back after other people because she made a number of trips across the Mason-Dixon line between slave states and free states prior to the Civil War. So this notion of being ready to go when there is a moment, let's move, is one that I bring into the current day racial justice movement. There are people who don't have to be convinced. They may not know all of the information. They may not know the first steps to take, but they don't have to be convinced about the humanity of Black people. They don't have to be convinced that there are gaps that exist. They don't have to be convinced that systemic racism is actually a dynamic. So our challenge and opportunity is to make sure that we are somehow mobilizing those folks making sure that the movement is about Black people and our allies moving forward together for change. Others will come along. Others may not come along and put up resistance along the way, but there are ways to deconstruct resistance. There are ways to get around that resistance. So to any listener who may be asking themselves, well, what can I do? There are a plethora of resources online, especially for one who might consider oneself an ally, to take first steps around even thinking about what does it mean to be actively anti-racist. You can sit and say, I'm not a racist, I don't think these things about people, but your silence is complicity. So unless you are actively anti-racist, then you're not doing anybody any good. There's a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, and that provides, I think, a first step for folks who want to start exploring how to be actively anti-racist, which will then lead to other activities that folks can engage in. So it's all hands on deck against this racism and white supremacy thing now. Cedric, it's always such a pleasure talking to you. This does feel like just a slice of the many conversations that are needed, but I'm glad we've been able to make sense of the current moment and see what possibilities are there for action. Thank you. Lucy, thank you. This has been such a joy and honor to be able to chat with you today, and hopefully listeners will hear something that resonates with them and prompts them to take action. So fingers crossed around that. Keep up the great work, sister. Thank you.